Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to tell you something right now that I think probably when I say this, there may be a choir of people out listening who will raise their hands and sing hallelujah, because this, I think, is the one thing about work that drives more people bonkers than anything else. And there now seems to be numbers that go with it. Too many meetings. That's that's what we're hearing. People, offices, bosses are having too many meetings. Uh, Future Forum, which is a group backed by a Slack Technologies has done a poll and it found most people, a huge percentage of people say too many darn meetings in offices. And even the bosses are saying we're having too many meetings. Uh, This is not a new thought, by the way. There have been other studies about this, other things written about it. One of the people who's written about it uh, not that long ago, uh, his name is Vijay Pereira. He is a professor of international and strategic human capital management at the Naoma Business School in France, who joins us now. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, My pleasure, Scott. So uh, the obvious question here is if everybody, apparently, from the staff to the workers to the bosses to everyone, if everyone realizes and thinks there are too many meetings, why do we still have so many meetings? Why does someone not say, fine, let's stop the meetings? Yeah, it's common sense is not as common today, is it? (laughs) No, it doesn't. It seems very simple. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, I think when we started this project many, many years ago, we were unsure about, Scott, how did this whole culture of meetings get into our corporate lives? And uh, we looked and searched and there was no research about it. And so what we did then is ask around. We asked, you know, uh, an 80-year-old executive to a 25-year-old and uh, they were as enthusiastic as saying, yes, meeting was always part of, you know, a corporate world. Uh, but really, it was it is, a, it is a very managerialistic proposition, to, 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 if I may put that, put it so, because it's control and power, isn't it? I mean, you have a meeting to get stock off what is happening, to plan for the future. I mean, that's the basic thing. Uh, but really, you know, it, it overtook our corporate lives. But wouldn't bosses and owners and other people who call these meetings all the time, wouldn't they, I I understand what your point is about the power, and I I think there's obviously something there, but wouldn't they be even more interested in the bottom line, which all the studies seem to say all these meetings are just costing valuable time that could be spent actually doing work? Yes, and they asked, where's the evidence? And hence our study. Our study was very, very clear in terms of how many times you meet, why should you be meeting at all, and so on. And so our study, if, if, if I may, Scott, very briefly, 71% of managers had already, before we started, we did a large survey, 25,000 people, and 71% of managers thought that they were costly and unproductive. But there was no evidence because nobody ever looked at meeting as a cost or an investment. It just happened. They were looking at other things to cut costs, including going down to a four-day week and so on and so forth. Uh, And so what we did is pushed to ask a thousand companies, uh, out of which 76 agreed to have at least one no meeting day a week for a year. So 76 companies signed up to our uh, proposition to say, run this for a year. And we come back and we look at the numbers. Okay. Yeah. And so 
And so these 76 companies had at least one to five no meeting days a week, and they ran it for a year. And then we revisited them, and we asked both the employee as well as the managers, and we looked at their performance appraisal compared to the previous year. And you know what? We looked for autonomy, better communication, better cooperation, better engagement, better productivity, and better, better satisfaction. And all of this had gone up from, wow. from, from, you know, one day a week as well went up as high. Let's, let me pick up one. Let's say engagement went up by 28% just by having one no meeting day a week for a year. Yeah, so, no, it's uh, it's an amazing, uh, and now here's the thing. It is, I would think it's totally predictable. However, I also can understand as much as I think that this is very common sense and what you're doing and common sense doesn't mean it's not useful. It's, it's you're putting numbers to common sense, but I think probably there would be an awful lot of managers and owners who would be fearful of cutting it because you are then losing some control as you've talked about, or you're maybe not feeling like you're as much on top of what's happening under you. Yes. And that's why what we say is three, no meeting days a week, up to three between one and three uh, is the ideal or optimal level. Two days a week, we would have to have those meetings to take stock off to control and of course, we are not saying we should not have meetings for the sake of not having. Sure. If, if, if meetings every day makes you more productive, so be it. If meeting every day doesn't uh, uh, lead to uh, uh, burnouts, please do. You see, if meeting every day doesn't lead to conflict, please do. But but it's the, it's the opposite, you see, because stress was and, and, and micromanagement were found to be the two negative aspects in our study. So and micromanagement would, went down with lesser meetings and stress levels went down with lesser meetings. And so I would have to think hard. that I would have to think that many of the things and I don't know if this was included in your study but I would have to believe that many of the things that companies have their staff meet to do with the technology we have today could be covered in an email that would take way less time. Everybody just reads it for two minutes at their desk and we don't all have to gather around and all have our say on something and waste all that time. Like we have the ability now with the technology we possess to, I would think, wean out a lot of these things. Absolutely. You hit the head, uh, nail on the head here, Scott. You know, this is exactly what we are proposing is have fewer meetings, keep a meeting agenda, follow that agenda. Meeting hygiene is what we call it. And... And, and then the outcome or the output of those meetings. Let me tell you a, a, you know, a very quick story. One of the 76 companies that signed up, signed up after having 17 meetings to decide whether they should join us or not. <laughs> yeah. That's that's yeah. brilliant. And, and, and that, that's where we rest our case, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. That and and I bet you that maybe they weren't, maybe not the other ones didn't have 17, but I bet there were a lot of companies that had a bunch. To yeah. decide, yes. So, 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 really, what we're saying is, what we're arguing for is a better work-life balance. Uh, uh, people come back more engaged. They deliver better. And isn't that not what an organization wants from their employees? Well, yeah. And in this piece, and so the, you've all written as part of this study. There was a piece that was written by you and your co-authors, the people who worked on this in the Harvard Business Review. 
Uh, and one of the things, and we only have a minute here, but be very selective is one of the subheads, is one of the, the 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 touch points here, which is I think one of the areas you've talked about it as meeting hygiene. That's where things get away. I don't even know that people hate meetings per se so much. I think what they really hate is meetings that seem to have no direction, no focus, and just carry on forever. Absolutely. And also, where is the time to get ready for the meetings? So if there are fewer meetings, people are better prepared. You know, the, the, the classic back-to-back meetings, just show that you're busy doing nothing, literally. I, as I said off the top, I really believe that people listening um, are probably saying to themselves right now, where has this been all my life? Please, professor, come and talk to my boss and make them make them listen to your study. Uh, people can go online. Well, if you want to read this study, about this study, uh, it's in a, an online publication called Ascend, A-S-C-E-N-D, Ascend. The headline is, Dear Manager, You're Holding Too Many Meetings. Ah, there's a lot of common sense in here. Doesn't mean common sense is simple. You can bring in very bright people like uh, Vijay Pereira, who we've been talking to, to bring this point home. But uh, boy, common sense sometimes makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking some time. My pleasure again, Scott. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me just read. This is from the BBC's report. They, they've encapsulated it pretty well. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs. An alleged drunken altercation at an Arizona resort has landed a Canadian Supreme Court judge on paid leave. According to a police case report filed in January, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran claimed Justice Russell Brown engaged in the unwanted touching of a female guest at the resort. The veteran said he later punched Mr. Brown a few times during an argument. It goes on from there. So we've got this... It's a bizarre story to begin with, made more so by the fact that we've got a Canadian Supreme Court judge somehow mixed up in this. We don't know exactly what happened exactly. But as I'm reading all this, all I can think is, boy, if this was Clarence Thomas down in the States or John Roberts or Samuel Alito, it would have been wall-to-wall coverage for days. And up here... Mm, Not so much. In fact, up here, if you had said, oh man, did you hear that Russell Brown was involved in an altercation? People, I'm guessing 99.9% of the Canadian population would have no idea who you're talking about. I want to bring Philip Slayton into the conversation. He is not just a former lawyer who clerked at the Supreme Court in Canada. He's also the author of the book, Mighty Judgment, How the Supreme Court of Canada runs your life. He joins me now. Philip, thank you for doing this. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm always puzzled by this, though, that we have, I know that we run on a different system than the Americans. We don't, our, our courts aren't the same. Our government is not the same. But even so, we're right beside each other, and their Supreme Court justices are, for lack of a better word, celebrities, and ours are, for all intents and purposes, anonymous. How is that possible? Well, it's a very good question, Scott. I think there are a number of explanations for it. Uh, one explanation is the ingrained, very deep sense of deference that Canadians have for institutions, for important people, for people in government, uh, particularly if they wear robes. There's a, a natural instinct that Canadians have to defer to these people, to respect them, whether they deserve respect or not. And that's unlike the United States, where it's much more of a, a free-for-all, which has both good and bad aspects to it. That's one reason. A second reason, I think, is the press, the media, which are not as assiduous, as aggressive as perhaps they could be 
in covering stories like this. I mean, you're quite right in the United Kingdom or in the United States, the press for sure to be all over it. Now, some people would say, well, that's not the Canadian way. It's not uh, seemly. It's, we shouldn't do that. I happen to disagree with that position, particularly when it involves a very important person. I mean, the, mm. the citizenry, the people of Canada should know what happened. And it's up to the media in good measure to dig out the truth. And then the third thing I would point to is the nature of the court itself, the Supreme Court itself. Uh, although it has some similarities with that of the United States, it also has some differences. And I might add that the Supreme Court in this particular instance, if I understand what happened correctly, has handled the whole thing very badly. How? Well, there's no tr transparency. I mean, the first that anybody knew that something was afoot was when all of a sudden uh, Russell Brown, Justice Brown, uh, was being asterisked, so to speak. Uh, an asterisk which said, well, he didn't, although he sat on this case, he's not rendering an opinion. So people said, well, what's all that about? Uh, and they asked questions and were told nothing. Uh, and then subsequently in drips and drabs, some information has come out, but not a whole lot. So people are asking themselves what happened. Uh, is Justice Brown severely compromised or was it all just some kind of mistake of no consequence? The way to deal with that is transparency, is to get out with it, is, is to say this is what happened and this is how we're dealing with it. The Supreme Court has not done that, which is a little bit surprising to me because the current Chief Justice, Chief Justice Wagner, has in some respects been much more transparent with the public than his predecessors. But in this case, I think uh, this particular case, as I understand it, and I only know what I've seen in the newspapers, in this particular case, it seems to me to have been bungled. And it has raised all kinds of questions and doubts that didn't have to be raised and may turn out to be uh, um, mistaken. Mm. Which way do you think the public is better served when the justices are known? So we, their names are known, their positions are known, their politics are known, their leanings are known, like in the States, or here when you say Supreme Court and it seems much more like just a, an institutional block as opposed to just justices that are doing it. Which way works better? Well, I think there's no doubt in my mind that the first way you describe works much better. After all, the Supreme Court and the judiciary in general, the Supreme Court in particular, are very important parts of the governance of Canada. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada stands equally in some respects with the executive branch, the prime minister and the cabinet, and the legislative branch. And anybody, any institution which is an integral, and very important part of Canadian government deserves to be scrutinized. Mm. And the people who are in those institutions, in this particular case, the judges of the Supreme Court, deserve to be scrutinized. We, you know, we, might, we need to know who they are. We need to know how they're chosen. We need to know what they think. We need to know how they behave. But that has not been the Canadian tradition. And I think that's a bad thing. I think on the whole, it serves the country poorly when that is the situation. Well, and to your point, and I think it's an excellent point, I mean, we have had some cases even recently that have been I don't want to say earth shattering, that's too strong, but very, very, very significant. I mean, medical assistance in dying as it's expanded and it's the courts that have really pushed this to, to where it's gone. And you're right, we don't know any of these people, I don't think, who are making these decisions that are changing how our country operates. Well, you, you didn't mention the subtitle of my book about the Supreme Court, which is how the Supreme Court of Canada runs, runs your life. life. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that many important decisions that affect you and me and our families and the people who live next door are decisions not taken by the federal cabinet, 
not taken by the provincial government, but are taken by the Supreme Court of Canada. So in that case, in the kind of liberal democracy that we have, we deserve to know who these people are. And if some kind of doubt is cast on one of them, some kind of cloud is over one of their heads, as is the case now, we need to know what that's about. We need full disclosure. We need transparency in order to maintain confidence in this institution. Okay, so the media in Canada, and I'm a part of it, the media in Canada yes, you are. is free to talk about these people, to profile these people, to bring their names and their stances to the attention of the public, which can only lead me to believe that the media in Ottawa or whomever is going to cover this feels that there isn't interest among the readers or viewers. I can't think of any other reason why there would not be, why this wouldn't be done. Or am I missing something? Is there some other reason why no. the media doesn't cover these people the way they do in the States? Well, I think a couple of things. I think you're, you're right, uh, Scott, in what you say. I think the media kind of imbibes the Canadian ethos. And if they figure people basically don't care, they're not interested, that they won't cover these issues, these events uh, uh, thoroughly. So I think that's a big part of it. I also suspect, and you would know this probably better than I, that part of it is a question of resources. Uh, in the United States, we talked about the United States. In the United States, major newspapers, major television and radio stations have huge resources they can throw at these stores. That is not the case in this country. Uh, so that may be part of it as well. But I think it's time for change. I think we need to know much more about the Supreme Court of Canada. I think the court itself needs to be transparent. I think the media needs to be more aggressive. And I think all we citizens need to say, we want to know. We want you to tell us. We, we're entitled to that. So, okay, so this this situation right now, the, the story that brings us to talk about this with uh, with Justice Brown, uh, I don't think anyone could possibly describe this as a good story or a good news story. This is no, not. definitely not. However, however, I do wonder if what you're talking about, does it take a story like this that's rather salacious and a little bit, you know, tabloidy, could this be one of the things that begins to get people paying attention to some of the names of the people on the court? Could it, in a weird, backhanded way, serve a purpose? Well, one would hope so, uh, but I doubt it, because there have been other weird things, if I can call them that, that have happened within the Supreme Court without explanation in the past, and people seem to just shrug it off. They don't seem to care particularly. So I don't know about this case, but I would say this to you, that as we stand today, uh, Justice uh, Brown has a, certainly a cloud hanging over his head, and it may turn out to be nothing. It may turn out to be a misunderstanding sure. of the kind of thing that we, you know we're not really interested in. But as it stands today, he has a cloud hanging over his head, and that compromises him. And indeed, the court has a similar cloud hanging over his head. What happened? Why weren't we told? He's on leave as of now. How is the court going to function with eight rather than nine members, particularly since there's some very important cases come out involving the province of Alberta? So the whole thing is, if not a mess, it's close to a mess and it needs to be dealt with. Uh, and the sooner the better. All right, last thing, because I'm already over time, but I got to ask this. Since you mentioned that it's now functioning at eight rather than nine, how does it work if you end up with a tie in the Supreme Court because there's one of the justices missing? What happens if it's 4-4 on a case? Well, I think what would happen is that the Chief Justice, who is essentially supposed to and probably to some extent does run the court, would move heaven and earth to find make sure that that did not happen. But because it would be highly embarrassing. 
Does does somebody, does he or does someone have the tie-breaking vote, or do we know? No, 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 that is not the case. But the Chief Justice does have a certain amount of moral suasion ability. Uh, He has a certain ability to kind of herd the cattle, so to speak. And I think he would be very anxious to avoid that highly compromising result. I mean, in some cases, for example, the court, well, normally, in fact, the court sits five, which is capable of doing now, or sits seven. It's only in a case where it sits nine where that could possibly happen. And I, I think there are mechanisms available to the Chief Justice and the court in general to avoid that result. But the best mechanism, the best solution is to get Justice Brown back on the court fully and deal with it that way. Uh, that is Philip Slayton. He is the author. He's the author of many books, but uh, the one we're talking about today, Mighty Judgment, How the Supreme Court of Canada Runs Your Life. Really appreciate you taking time. Fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in the birthday boy. Just a day or two ago, this man turned 30 years old, which was, a, you know, an amazing accomplishment. It was 30, right? I can't, I, I can't lie. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, had you said maybe, if you added maybe 10 or 15 to it, <laughs> I would I would have went along with your storytelling, but I, I can't go that far. That is Bubba O'Neill, the birthday boy of Hamilton of CHCH. He, uh, he did have a birthday a couple days ago, so happy birthday, sir. And Thank uh, you, sir. Um, yeah, lots, uh, lots going on, including, I don't, I wasn't going to talk about this specifically, but, um, I know you had it on the sports today, uh, the national volleyball championship starting at Mac tomorrow. If people have not seen high level university top flight volleyball, I got to tell you, it is, it, it, it will blow you away. You've, you've seen it. I mean, it to me, it's one of those sports that you don't get a real sense of when you watch it on TV compared to live. It, it, it is a sport to watch live. You know, unfortunately, it suffers from the fact that there's really no well-known professional league in this country, at least, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there are other countries in Europe, we'll say. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, in Asia, where this, this stuff, I mean, is packing gyms, as it has even in the regular season for both the men and the women uh, at McMaster, and it has done so for many years. I think that's the reason why uh, Mac is hosting this this national championship for, I believe, the fifth time. Yep, yep. Because, I mean, the, 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 the surface is good. The I think the energy, because it's it's that old-school gym with the, just the two... Um, uh, uh, what do you call those bleachers? Oh, the bleachers, yeah, yeah. The bleachers. Not, not, it doesn't surround you, so it's kind of right on top of you. And when you get, you know, you get a couple thousand people in there, combined with the what I said in the show, the speed, the strategy, and the, the spectacular athletic ability of these athletes, and again, men and women, this, it, it's just... It's high level. Yeah. Right? Of, and, and I and I say that with all due respect. I know a lot of people like beach the beach game, but I don't I, I think it pales in comparison to watching the, the, the chemistry that these players have on the floor. Yeah, I it's one of those things and I know there are some people who are probably saying, guys, it's volleyball you're talking about. I I, I get it. I and until a few years ago, 
Uh, I was the same. And then I got to tell you, as that, again, seeing it in person, it doesn't translate on television like it is in person. It's, it's, uh, if you get a chance and you want to see something this weekend, although you might want to hurry up because uh, I was told this afternoon that um, I think it's like 80 or 85% already sold for all the Mac games. So um, anyway. Uh, well, can, so, you ma- can you imagine if, if, if Mac make the final on Sunday? Well, they, they were there. In the final, when they hosted in 2014, they lost to Trinity Western, and I can't remember if any of the more recent times they were in the final. But no, it's um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Anyway, there's uh, something to do for uh, for Friday, Saturday, or Sunday if people are interested. All right, so I'm looking at this story from our friend Dave Naylor at TSN, and what he's saying is that the the CFL is about to really begin its latest push to try and get that 10th team going in the Atlantic provinces somewhere, Halifax, probably. Is this ever going to happen, do you think? Is this ever going to find an owner, find a situation where they can even a temporary stadium do something? Is this going to eventually happen? I I think so. I, I think it will happen. I just think the parameters and what the league and, and what everyone wanted in the past, I think you've got to change your mindset. Here's, here's what I always think of. And do you remember when BC place went under renovation yep, for, yep. I believe a two year period and they had set up where the old BC lions football field was. They set up a set of temporary stands. And I believe, I mean, we, we had that experience with the tiger cats in Guelph a couple of years ago, but that stadium was basically a temporary setup. It was like a, like a boxed up, stadium that they put together that they could use at any time that holds, if I remember, a little over 25,000. I don't believe, and I know everyone wants a dynamite, amazing, new, flashy facility out east. I don't think it's necessary. I think what you can do, kind of what the Bulldogs are doing, is, you know what, maybe build a facility for the players that they have a really good, you know, locker room and, you know, areas to watch film and that kind of stuff. But the stadium itself, I don't think has to be anything grandioso. And I think from there, you will, you should be able to get, I think, a good base of people that, you know, would go to Halifax and, and watch a football game, what, nine times a year plus possible playoffs. Yeah, yeah. It was called Empire Stadium in BC, the one they, they built. And I, I'm not sure exactly how many, uh, how many seats it held, but here was the thing. It was, it actually looked really good. Like it, did. It, it, it looked really, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't stupid looking. Like it didn't look like you just had a bunch of bleachers and it was rickety and everything else. It looked really well done. And it was a margin, a fraction of the cost of what an actual stadium Absolutely. would have been. You so, know, and you spend some money, you spend some money and just build a building right beside it, right? Where the players can go in and out and, you know, maybe there's some type of area for season ticket holders to go, you know, have their drink and watch the game or whatever. That could, I mean, let, come, on, come on, look at the construction that we've seen in this city and, and in this province. You could build something like that in probably six months. Well, right? okay, so I just pulled this thing up. So it was Empire Field, pardon me, not Empire Stadium. Empire Field held 27500 and it was built in three months for $14.4 million. So even if you were to do this and the winters you couldn't leave it up because it's for whatever reason, you know what, could the CFL, could a CFL team 
could it make it financially worthwhile to take it up and put it down before each season? I don't know. I don't know. Or is there some way that you could make it so that it can stand through the winter? I mean, they have some rough winters out there, but mm-hmm. anyway, 14 and a half million but, but, bucks is it, not if, overwhelming sorry. for a stadium at all. But if, the, yeah, and this is what I'm saying, I know, and you're right, that some of those winters are really rough out there. But the, I think if I remember correctly, again, that, that stadium in BC was, a, it's an aluminum facility. Yeah. It's not like wood or anything like that, which should be able to, you know, with, with, you know, annual keeping up or whatever, you should be able to take care of that for a number of years until maybe a decade from now there is more time or more, uh, you know, funds to build a, a more permanent stadium. But let's get this going. Like, I mean, the first things first is the scheduling. Like, I'm sorry, I hate to use this word, but the scheduling of the CFL sucks. And, and, and the fact that every year there's going to be uh, a team that doesn't come to your building or you don't go to their building. Last year, Oakville native Nathan Rourke, in his one spectacular, you know, record-breaking season from Oakville, never got to play in Hamilton because yeah. of scheduling. Yep. No, and by Mitchell will never go to will not go to Calgary this year to to showcase. Like, imagine the hype. Like, that's your automatic game of the week. Bo Levi Mitchell going into Calgary to lead the Tiger Cats against the Stampeders. That's not happening this year. It is, uh, and and you bring the extra team in. Now you've got 10, which means you have nine opponents, and you play an 18-game season. Well, pff, the math, I mean, it, home and away. Every team, one home, one away, and... And here's the other thing. I know that, you know, here in Hamilton, we love the rivalry with the Ticats, but I got or with the Argos, but I got to tell you, was it last year or the year before when they had the four games in five last weeks? Year. Last year. And it was like, really? Okay, you know what? I mean, it, there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. And that was complete overkill. And so if you could make it so that it's a home and away with everyone, the other great thing about this is it completely, as best as possible, balances the schedule so that you don't, you, you don't run the risk potentially of getting the extra game against a powerhouse while the team you're competing for a playoff spot or playoff position gets the, the, the stinky team an extra time. You know, this is, this is, this is the absolute perfect thing for the CFL if they could make it happen. I, I totally believe so, right? And you, you're making, you're exposing that sport, not just for one one-off, an annual, show, you know, an annual sort of thing, uh, you know, this touchdown Atlantic, which, you know, the league I think has done a good job in because every year they go out there, it's a success. And the people say they love the product, and but there's no rooting interest for them. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. Like, I think last year it was the Argonauts that went to Saskatchewan, that played Saskatchewan out there. And you know what? I know the Argos struggle at home with their attendance, but you know what? If I'm a season ticket holder and I lost a home game because they're playing it out out east, I'm not too happy with that. Right? It's like the Bills. I'm not happy with that. It's like the Bills this year. They're going to play a game out in England. Well, I'm not, and I and I believe it's their home game. Well, I'm not too happy about a game not being in Western New York. I understand the league wants expansion and wants to showcase itself, but I'm the I'm the paying fan in this market. So why are you taking a home game away from me? Yeah, no, I, I I I agree with it. We'll we'll see. I mean, the only other question I have is, uh, I've been out east a couple times. Not, I mean, there's a lot of people listening who have been out there way more, or grew up there, or have lived out there. So I don't I don't pretend to be the expert here. But the the times I've been out there, I've always wondered, uh, do, are there enough people in any one of these provinces or cities? 
to make it go. You, it almost seems like you need you'll need to have the Saskatchewan Rough Riders scenario where people will drive four or five or six hours like they do in Saskatchewan to come to a game, which is crazy. I mean, it's unbelievable they do this, but they do. And that's the other question. Will, will people drive from another Atlantic province to come to a game? And I don't know the answer. I, I, I mean, we don't, I can't, I can't answer that, that question either, but I think I know the answer. I think it works. And I think you just nailed it, right? The, the, the model that the Rough Riders have, and you're right. You have people traveling from as far as eight hours away from Regina to make, to make that game. Yep, and yep. for them, it's a, it's a big event. It turns into a whole weekend deal. Right, where either you're staying over or you know they're tailgating the whole the whole thing, and I I have to believe that if you put a team in Halifax, there would be teams that travel as far as maybe three to four hours, whether you're in PEI or New Brunswick, that you'll be willing to make a game, and you know especially if they position the games more so on weekends and not so much on Thursday nights, where it, it, it's it's more fan friendly for teams to make it that big event. Act yeah. just as they do for the one-off. So I think it's time to get this done. As I said, I don't think you need the, the you don't need a, a, a dome stadium or anything in this madness. They've shown well in terms of attendance for AHL franchises. Uh, I think the the teams out in junior hockey do very well. Come on, let's get this done and get a, a CFL team out there and, and and get this going. All right. Speaking of teams and owners, I want to pivot here a little bit. Um, Gary Bettman was talking the other day, the NHL commissioner, of course, who we love to hate here in Hamilton. Love to hate Gary Bettman. I mean, Gary Bettman, there's nothing. Gary Bettman could cure cancer at the Jurovinsky Clinic and people in Hamilton would still hate the man. Nonetheless, it's true. It's true though. (laughs) Nonetheless, I got to ask you this because he said yesterday or the day before he was being interviewed and he says that the Ottawa Senators uh, sale, the process is moving into the next phase. It could be just a few weeks until they have a new owner. Now we know Michael Enlauer, owner of the Bulldogs, is one of the candidates. However, my question is this, the Ottawa Senators, there are rumors that this team could sell from anywhere from 800 million to a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. If the Ottawa, let's go with the lowest, Let, let's not be stupid here. Let's just say, okay, it's 800, 750, let's go even below. Right. Nonetheless, if the Ottawa Senators, the smallest market team, second smallest market, I guess, to Winnipeg, but one of the smallest in the entire NHL, if it were to sell for $750 million, mm-hmm. is this the coronation of Gary Bettman as the best commissioner in sports? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many factors to to hand over that that title, Scott. I, I think that's tough. I mean, you know, like it or not, Hamilton, where we are or not, I think he's already in the discussion, right? Like, I'm and I'm taking my bias out of it, but I'm looking at the sport itself, the growth, the amount of money. That's what I mean. Making, that's what the, I mean. The, the, you know, the the league, that the money that it's generating, the fact that they've now got themselves on two popular American networks. Uh, there's a lot to. There's a lot of positives about the National Hockey League right now and where it's going and where the future looks to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, this sale to me is going to happen. Um, I hope it ha- I hope it ends up into the hands of Michael Ann Lauer because I think he certainly deserves it and he's got the league experience. I'm, I'm, I'm quite I'm, – I'll be honest with you, and I say this because like, I keep seeing it at this station and many others. I'm, I'm, I'm growing tired of the slurping of Ryan Reynolds and, and all that and his people – 
Um, and, and I, and I, I would love this to be Canadian owned. The senators right now are a real interesting prospect, uh, 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 um, I think product right now. You look at that team right now. They remind me of the Buffalo Sabres right now. They're on the verge of being good for 10, 10 years. They've got a, a run of players that I think they're going to make that team competitive for a minimum of 10 years right now. So the timing could not be perfect. $750,000 or $750 million. Uh, you, I can't believe I'm saying this. It might be a bargain right now, right? Because if this team competes the way I think it can in, in, in the next decade or so with the talent that's there and a team that is, uh, I think, a, I think a, a market that's dying for, for winning, uh, I think this, and if they get that stadium going down on the Breton Platz, I think this is a, it could be a bargain. Spot. Well, and that's so, the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. So here's the thing. I don't think you have to like Gary Bettman to, to answer this question. And I don't know that the answer necessarily is yes, but Eugene Melnick bought the Senators back years ago, 2003, so 20 years ago, for $92 million. It's not chump change, but it's not 750 or $800 million. If you are Gary Bettman and your league can turn this from $92 million to those kind of dollars, imagine what the Maple Leafs would be. Imagine if MLSE put the Leafs up for sale or, or, if, the, <laughs> or, or if the New York Rangers went up for sale, for, you know, or, or any of these, you know, the really big teams now. You, Even the Habs. That, well, for sure, for sure. But you could be talking. I mean, we, I know that, you know, the NFL is always going to be ahead in franchise values and Major League Baseball and NBA. They're all going to be ahead. That, that doesn't necessarily mean all that much in this question because they started so far ahead and they're so much more established in the states where all the money is. But I, you know, I say, I look at this and I thought, boy, if Gary Bettman can pull this off and get this thing sold for almost a billion dollars, how do you not say he has done the best work of any of the commissioners? I'm telling you, like, you know, and, and I've told this to people and I think, you know, and again, in Hamiltonian, we do have our feeling about Bettman. Look, if you really do the work and you do the homework, and of course we, we automatically default to, well, look how lousy the, the franchise is doing in Arizona. No. Oh, you know, look how lousy the, the, the product is sometimes in Florida. Look how lousy it sometimes it's been in Carolina, though right now it's one of the craziest things going, right? And right now it's the Ducks, the Anaheim Ducks. I mean, even though they won Stanley Cup champions and the champs, uh, and, and, and they used to fill the building, well, they're struggling a little bit right now. And that has a lot to do with their team being young and not very good. But I'll tell you this. You take a look at the numbers in the Major League Baseball. You take a look at the NBA and the National Football League. They do a great job of masking crowds that are very similar to what we see in the National Hockey League. Mm. This is not just an issue in, 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 in the National Hockey League. It's, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. There's always going to be the, the, the I guess, the, the guys, the teams, the big wigs, and, and the ones that are struggling. It's in every league. Yeah. Trust me. And I'm not, and I'm not here as a Gary Bettman cheerleader. And Gary Bettman, like every commissioner, has his blind spots. And his is the Arizona Coyotes for sure. This is a, a head scratcher of all head scratchers. Uh, nobody, I don't think, can figure out why he is so determined to jam that square peg into a round hole. But he is. Um, you just just wait till Austin Matthews ends up there. <laughs> remember, remember, remember when we, our heads blew up when Ricky Ray ended up in Toronto, and look what happened. 
Things you know, happen sometimes. It, uh, I'm. Uh, we got to go. I. I. What a way to leave it. But I. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I, if he. If he asks the Maple Leafs, which the rumors are, the reports are, if he asks the Maple Leafs for fifteen million dollars a year, boy. Um, he might and, not even score forty goals this year. No, and the salary cap is only apparently going up by a million dollars. Um, I mean, if you're the Leafs and you've seen that they've actually won more games than they've lost when he's been out of the lineup. I'm not saying get rid of him because he's no good. That's not what I mean at all. He's fantastic. But do you have to at some point say, well, I guess we have to figure it out and let him go? I don't know. But I I wouldn't be. I, put it this way, Baba, your prediction would not make me fall off my chair if it actually happened. I'd be a little surprised, but I will not be shocked. There's a lot of financial reasons, and I know you, you and Dodd Robertson. Talked well, we about stole this. your we stole your question a week or no, so you ago. Yeah, you, you had a great discussion. I loved it. I, I thought it was fantastic. Like, this is a podcast. It was great. And, yep, and, and nope. I'm telling you, they, they, there's a lot of. If you look at the cents and the, the dollars and cents, and you know what, this team desperately want to keep Ryan O'Reilly around. There's a lot. They're going to have to pay for a goaltender. This nice kid that is coming up, maybe even next year. Robertson, when he's helped, like, there's money to be. You got to resign. You got to find like, money. Yeah, it's an. Got to find money, and yeah. if the salary cap's only going up by a million, and your team's already doing well without this guy, without Matthews, and he's a trigger man, he's amazing, he's a possible generational player, scored sixty goals. Yeah, but maybe. Well, let that discussion for another day. Uh, birthday boy, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.